2: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DW, Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
3: Support for the Terrace Podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, the best in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped just launched in the UK, and you could be one of the first men in the country to experience their life changing products. Manscaped has redesigned the electric trimmer. The Manscaped engineering team has perfected the greatest ball hair trimmer ever created and just released the new and improved Lawnmower 3.0. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code terrace at manscaped.com your balls well thank you because from personal experience my balls are thanking me I'm somebody who likes to keep trimmed down there but we all know with scissors one slip and you can end up in the emergency room you know a best case scenario with a very embarrassing story so nobody wants that there's no nicks it's, it's a very easy thing to use and I felt nice fresh clean down there afterwards you also get some other products that come with it such as ball deodorant which I was a bit sceptical at it that way but I used it it's anti chafing you smell great perfect product so just a reminder that is 20% off and free shipping with the code terrace at manscaped.com 20% off free shipping manscaped.com use the code terrace it's time to shave those balls
0: Hello and welcome to the Terrace Scottish Football Podcast. My name is Joel Sked and I'm delighted to have recruitment analyst Doogie Wright as my guest today. Thanks for coming on, Doogie. Very welcome. It's a pleasure to be on. One of the key reasons I wanted to get you on was just the role you have. You've worked with Livingston, obviously Wigan himself is a really interesting one. So jumping straight in, you were until recently employed by Wigan Athletic before they unfortunately fell into administration. Could you give us a bit of background about yourself and how you got into this specific role?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, So there's a couple of different strands about how I got into working in football. The first one is probably the more academic route. So I was doing a master's in business analysis and consulting at Strathclyde Uni about five years ago. And as part of that, I had to go and do a winter project with um, with the company. Most people were going out to like work with the police, work with the centre, work with any number of organisations. And I was fortunate enough to get on with Scottish Rugby Union. Um, not a massive rugby fan myself, to be honest, mm-hmm. but I was an to work in professional sport and um, it was something I really got into. So when the summer came, I had that little bit of sport experience in my in my locker and I wrote away to every. Scottish football club within like a two hour drive of Glasgow, uh, where I'm from, and saying, Look, I'm a um, business analysis student. Here's what I've done for Scottish rugby. Here's the sort of thing I'd like to do for you. I don't want any payment. I just need like a couple of hours with your coaches and maybe a desk once or twice a week, something like that. It was very, very minimal. Um, only two folk got back to me. One was Dundee United and um, unfortunately because I needed an answer quite quickly they weren't prepared to give me um, give me an answer so that one died in it's asked quite quickly and then the next one was Rangers um, and I'm a, I am grew up a Rangers fan absolutely ideal for me to be involved with the club mm-hmm. so I went in there I started working with a project with the academy that led to filming games with the academy and that led to and um, filming games for the first team as well for, for a few seasons. But at the same time, I was doing my full-time job. I was working for Virgin Media as a business analyst. Um, and, yeah, not getting paid for any of the football stuff. So it was, it was a hard graft. But, um, yeah, and then when Stephen Gerrard came into Rangers, there was a big reorganisation of the analysis department, of the whole football department at a whole. And unfortunately, Neil McIlhargy and Steve Harvey, who were the two guys that I worked under at Rangers, they were both let go, and so was I. Um, it's probably a good time to jump onto the next round, which is just. So, sorry,
0: just to, just to jump in before you you do, you said that you wrote to every Scottish team within a two-hour radius of where you where you lived. What was included in that letter? What were what were we kind of asking to do? Was there something that you noticed within Scottish football that was perhaps missing?
1: Yeah, I mean, in, in the club's defence, a lot of the I could get was to like info at uk. Like it was generic mailboxes a lot of mm. the time. Yeah, like I was just some wee guy writing to clubs asking them for something. I, I totally don't. I can't hold it against them for um, for not getting back to me. Only two. I, I was expecting maybe a little bit more back, but um, yeah, I mean, it's it's just one of these things. All I was looking for was. I can maybe help you with like, your youth academy. I can help you anything to do with the transfer process. I can help you from a sports science type of view as well. Like Here's my skill set, and I'm at your service, like, just so long as we can make it into some sort of university project. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I ended up doing with the Rangers was they were looking to see what would a German style of football across the academy look like. So what I had to do was quantify what, does, what is a German style of football and like looking back on it now, it was kind of dead basic stuff. So I was saying, in British football, it tends to be the centre midfields that make most passes per game. And in Germany, uh, it's the centre-backs who make most passes per game. So I was saying, right, give the ball more to your centre-backs and let them play out from the back. Just like, it was... Um, looking back, it wasn't particularly insightful, but it was a foot in the door. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's, once you've got the foot in the door and you can show that you're pleasant enough, just like any workplace, that you're a decent enough guy to be work with and you build relationships and you take it from there. Um so yeah, that was that was my first into football. And if we go to the second strand, sorry, I was around about this time I was starting a Twitter page just with fan stuff. Um that I noticed I noticed about around Scottish football. there's the website StatsBomb that I kinda of followed. I, um didn't really talk about Scottish football. The data wasn't really there for Scottish football. And so I tried to present some data for Scottish football that I just found myself. I would use the ESPN squad pages, I would look at BBC stats, I would try and collate it all and just present it a little bit differently to what was what was out there. Things like shot totals, like that wasn't readily available for a Scottish football fan. Like you couldn't see who had taken the most shots in the league, who had conceded the most. It was it was very, very basic when I we was starting off. And through that you met I met a community of other like-minded folk. Um, Matt Ryan, for example, the Backpass Real website, Christian Wolfe, Seth Dobson, Jason Letka of the Rangers Report, like all these guys with a similar aim to really analyse Scottish football and bring that more into a public sphere. Um, We banded together, started doing modern football, and before that I'd actually started doing some stuff for Clyde One on the side. So I was getting my name out there in terms of being able to analyse football. And it wasn't, it wasn't really rocket science, what I was doing. It was just taking publicly available data, presenting it in a way that I thought would be quite
0: informative. Um, yeah, because I, I always remember reading your, your Clyde stuff and you also went on to like uh, Johnny McFarlane at Daily Daily Record. He had you doing uh, kind of videos and al- analyst stuff there, and obviously working with uh, those guys and kind of creating modern football. It was uh, it became quite prevalent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It was the perfect time to get
1: involved. I think um, I was kind of pinching myself going on Clyde One and stuff, and Daily Record writing articles for them. I was still doing my like my day job at the side, and it was just felt so weird at the time. But fantastic opportunities, and I do think that given the response, that is like nothing that I put out there. I think was that great, but given the following that I got from that, I think there was an appetite within Scottish football for that sort of just that little bit more attention to be paid to that side of the game. So it was right place, right
0: time. And then, how did the Livingston position come about?
1: So Livingston was I'd left Rangers in the summer. I wasn't, I was kind of keeping my ears to the ground, but I was just kind of scunnered by the day job at that stage, um, doing like 40 hours a week in a role that, to be brutally honest, I didn't really fight. I wasn't that passionate about Mm -hmm. So I was in a little bit of a rut. And then October came and I had a week off work. Um, And my pal, Andrew Jubb, who was at Patrick Thistle, he now works for Huddle. He texts me to say, oh, if you're looking for an analyst, um, why don't you take a look at that advert? And I'd seen adverts before for analysts in Scottish football um, and even English football. And they were kind of, you need to have a sports science background. You need to have a coaching license, that sort of thing. I've never done a coaching course in my life. I've never read much about sports science either. So I think. A lot of the time, I would read these adverts and my heart would sink a little bit. I would be like, right, I've got no, there's no chance that I can get a career on this game. However, um, the, ad- the Livy advert was different. It was just a little bit of experience and analysis at another club, um, demonstrate that you can do a video, knowledge of this software. It's a lot more specific. So I sent away um, an application to, to the club. I heard back from them the next day, and, uh, yeah, I got the job later on that week. Um, I remember going to the office with Davey Martindale. I pulled up at Livingston at the Tony Macaroni. Um, and Davey Martindale was there. Uh, Dougie, okay, how are you doing? Good to meet you. Just like the most friendly person of all guy. Went in his office and he was showing me clips from the Hamilton game and things that he would have done differently. What did I think about the setup and this sort of thing? And, um, yeah, I was, I was totally blown away by it. Next thing I know, the next Saturday we've got a home game against Celtic, and I'm filming um, in the spaghetti had surrounded by Celtic fans, and drawn nil nil, and it was fantastic. It was uh, what an experience! Like a week before, I was just kind of sitting on the couch, picking my nose, and uh, to go from that to a fantastic atmosphere at Tony Macaroni and a fantastic result as well. It was it was an incredible series of days. And at Livingston, what did your role entail? So Olivia I was the first team analyst. Um, What that would entail, so at the start of the week, I would get a report from the head of opposition analysis, the opposition scout, and that would be a 15, 16-page PDF about the team that we're going to be playing later on that week. And I would then go on Y-Scout, and I'd build a video presentation based on stuff that I noticed and based on things from that report and anything else that Davy or Gary would would mention to me as being appropriate. So that altogether, all together I would put together uh I think the videos were about 10 minutes in length, not not more than 10. 15 minutes was certainly the longest video I would have done there. Um and that would get distributed to the players before the game. So they could kind of see what's the opposition shape. How do we expect individual players to react? What's their distribution like in and out of possession? All this sort of stuff. Um and that would go to the players. For the games, I'd film the games, I would have mm-hmm. to um I would have to yeah, obviously go to every stadium, film them myself. Sometimes at half time I would get I remember we were playing who was it we were playing? Craig it got sent off in the first half. I can't remember right now off the top of my head who it was. Um, but then I got a Twitter message from him at halftime saying, "Was it a red?" I was like, "Well, <laughs> um, yeah." It's other ones. What like was your reply? Up.
0: Yes. <laughs>
1: I was kind of like, oh, "I could not really tell," but yeah, it was a red. If I'm being honest, um, yeah. Other things would be like, "Was that a penalty?" Like, "Was what happened there?" Did the ball go over line? That sort of stuff. After the game, I'd go back into the coach's office. I would um, cut the match out. I would tag the match. Nothing mega-detailed. It would just be what, are the, what were the major chances that we had that we conceded, any flashpoints, penalties, yellow cards, that and a little bit anything else, like Davey Martindale, for example, is very big in set pieces. So he'd sometimes say, right, I want all our set pieces clipped from this game. Uh, I want all of so-and-so's throw-ins tagged on a playlist so I can go through them on Monday. And, yeah, you would just do that and send that out to the players afterwards so they could see all the goals from the game all the highlights before anybody else and yeah that that was it that's how it worked week to week I started in the start of November I think it was and aside from a short January break I was pretty full on from there until the end of the season Um, but yeah it it was a wonderful journey to be a part of with the team
0: yeah, I was going to ask how did, how did you find being involved with Livingston because obviously it was uh, the first season back in the Premiership it was a very successful one they got criticism in some uh, kind of in some circles I really, really enjoyed watching them I thought they were kind of breath of fresh air to, to the Scottish Premiership just with their, their style of play
1: Yeah, I mean it was everything was done very pragmatically which is something from an analyst standpoint, I very much enjoyed. There wasn't many cliches about, um, you know, the usual ones that you hear, like, let's just put it along, put them under pressure, second ball lads, all that sort of stuff. It was very specific advice that they'd give to the players. Mm-hmm. It was a great team as well. They bonded really quickly. A lot of the lads had, I'm sure I don't need to tell you this, but they'd been there since League One. So successive promotions, a real sort of band of brothers approach to it. Um, and yeah, there were some great scalps. Before I arrived, they beat Rangers obviously 1 0. Um, two draws with Celtic, one at Tony Macaroni in my first game, and uh, another one at Parkhead. 5 0 against Hearts. I know your heart is so that <laughs> must be, be a sore one. But uh, yeah, I mean, there were some some fantastic results along the way. Um, and yeah, the, all the players to a man were, were brilliant with me. There was no arrogance. Um, they were all very personable, they all knew my name. Um, yeah, great, great group of guys.
0: One thing that I, I really uh, struck with me was, I think a lot of people just looked at Livingston and thought that they're really like really basic, but like looking at Livingston, it just seemed what they've done, they, they didn't get the, the credit, and they still probably don't get the credit they, they deserve just for the fact that they're so well-organised and so well-drilled, and you look around, again, go back to hearts, so that's not been the case despite having a lot more money for the last 18 or so months.
1: Yeah, I think organisation in football is is one of these things that you can almost take it for granted. No amount of money can buy you organisation. Um, I mean, you see it even at the top end of the English Premiership, Arsenal are about to finish what, 10th. Sheffield mm-hmm. United and Burnley, two incredibly disciplined teams, are going to finish above them for the first time in ages if ever Um, so you don't, that sort of continuity, that dressing room spirit, the discipline within the group, that's not something that you can just get an investor to come in and you're going to automatically have that I think you do see clubs, and you see clubs everywhere struggle with it, it's not necessarily a hearts thing, it's not a Dundee United thing or a Rangers thing before that, it's difficult to build that spirit especially with the expectation level um, at a club like Parks is probably that few notches higher than it would be at Livingston. Um, I suppose that attitude as well, kind of nothing to lose, came into it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we could go set up with, in these sort of tactical systems and styles, knowing that even if we did get humped 5 0, then it was still a brilliant effort to be, be involved in the league. It was the lowest. I think if you look at the Global Sports salaries Survey or something like that that goes out and it shows all the wage levels from each club. Livingston were like one of the lowest throughout their data set. I think you're including like Japanese clubs. The amount they were paying to players was not much at all. Um, And so, yeah, there was just a great spirit that was fostered throughout it. And yeah, they got their rewards last season and they certainly got their rewards this season with a top six
0: finish. And before we move on to the transition to Wigan, uh, just last thing about Livingston, your role there as first team analyst. What was the? How was the relationship with the likes of Gary Holt and David Martindale when you were pre- uh, preparing that video uh, for the opposite, like f- the team that was coming up? Was there specific things they always wanted to look at?
1: Yeah, generally it would be. You settled quite quickly on a format for these reports. Mm. It would tend to be. Um, what are they like in possession in their own half? What are they like in possession in the final third? What are they like out of possession in their build-up? And what are they like in sorry, during our build-up? And how do they defend their final third? Then you'd go on to look at set pieces, any individual players. Um, sometimes I would be asked to pay particular attention to a certain type of player, a certain 1v1, and you'd always have to bear in mind who we were. Like, there was no point in me... I can't think of a specific example off the top of my head, but there's no point in me saying to somebody like who's a dead fast player in the league, somebody, I don't know, he's not massively fast, but somebody like Oswald and Edward, that we should try and like stand him up physically 1v1 because he's such a strong player. Mm. When we, didn't, we wouldn't have had that strength. That's a bad example. That's a really bad example because we did have strong centre-backs and Hulk's and Declan Gallagher that sort of thing. Like you needed to make the analysis relevant. It was wasn't it's not right if I see something that we can't actually use, we can't actually counter. Um, so so yeah, I mean they were they were great with it. There was lots of communication. If there was anything any tweaks needed then then they'd let me know in due court and um, good time. But yeah they they were both an absolute pleasure to work
0: with. And then moving into to Wigan how did that move come about?
1: So that was um I was I was on my computer after another long week at Virgin Media, and it was a Friday night. And I saw that my role at Virgin Media was a business analyst.
0: So, sorry, I thought, were, you, were you still doing Virgin Media while
1: we were at Livy? Yeah, yeah, still full time, still full time there. Um, so yeah, if I, I had to take some. I remember, like Aberdeen, for example, I'd have to leave. I had to take a half day off work. That we're playing them midweek in December. So I had to leave work at half past 12 to get to Tony Macaroni for half past one to make the bus there, go up to Aberdeen, film the game. We lost in the last minute. Lewis Ferguson overhead kick, absolute sick enough. Then bus back down, back in my car at Tony Macaroni. I would drive back to Glasgow and then it was like two o'clock in the morning or something like that. And then back up for work at seven o'clock the next day. I mean, it could be that December was particularly brutal just with what, eight or nine fixtures wrapped into the month. It was, it was mad. Um, and that, that's sort of why I was looking to get a full-time role elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And that's when Wigan came up. It was business and recruitment analyst. And I thought, well, I already do the sort of football analysis side of things with Livingston. And I do the business analysis side as my day job. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a great opportunity to merge them both together. Um, so I applied the way for that. Went down, down the road to Wigan for my interview about a month later. And um, yeah, was offered the job.
0: So some may be oblivious to what actually a recruitment analyst is. Others maybe picture someone stuck in a small cupboard at the club's training ground like just watching scout for hours on end. Put it simply, what is a recruitment analyst and what, what is the job?
1: Recruitment analyst is probably a fancy term for scout, if I'm being honest. Okay. Um, as part of my role, so they say the three the three tenants of recruitment watching players. So you've got live, video, and data. And I did all three. I would go to games around the northwest of England to, just to keep my eye on any players that we thought might be interesting. I would I designed specific... I'll talk a little bit more about this in a minute, but I designed mm. specific metrics um, to highlight players through the data that we'd filter. And then there was a hell of a lot of video as well, watching these players, making sure that what I was... Seeing the stats, what was seeing the data was reflected by what was going on in the pitch, and that was quite a difficult balance to strike a lot of the time. And the the fortunate thing was then through that you refine your stats, so you're you're getting better, getting better data, wasting less time in the video, and ultimately producing better value players. So it's watching a lot of players. It's a lot of networking as well. Being conscious to what the first team coaching staff are after. Being conscious to what the chief executive what he wants to see in the team, the sporting director, um, there's a, there's a lot of relationship management is there aside from just purely watching the players and coming up with lists. You've got to know how to sell players mm-hmm. um, upwards and downwards at the club. So yeah, it's, it's an all encompassing role. But do you know what? For a football geek, it's absolutely top class. It doesn't feel like work. Um, yeah, I mean, you do have some shit days, of course you do, when you feel like the world's against you, but by and large, the amount of times where you just pinch yourself and thinking like, hold on, I'm getting paid to watch this football game for a living. It's madness. But yeah, absolutely love the role.
0: What would a normal... It's probably hard to quantify normal within football, but how would a, a normal week look for you and uh, as a recruitment analyst? Yes, yeah, so... On
1: what we'd probably do, I'll give you an example. So recruitment obviously works in cycles. Mm-hmm. You've got um, the, at the start of the season, the build-up to January, in which case it's kind of everybody's on their toes because you're not really sure how the team is going to evolve pardon me, between the start of the season and um and January, you know what they say—the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We all think that you're starting the season, and oh yeah, we'll get into playoffs or whatever. And then the wheels can come off very quickly. Injuries can happen. Suspensions rack up. Personalities maybe don't fit in as as you hope they would. So that's that's the case of um, just being very very alert to the situation as it as it evolves. Looking around Europe as well, a lot of players. It's difficult in that sort of September, October, November time to see many patterns just because a lot of players have only played five or ten games and convincing a club to spend two or three million on them is going to be difficult on the back of that. But then after the January window you do the best that you can and you start looking at the Bosmans for um, for June. So a typical week in that sort of January, February, March time would be you'd come in and we would look at every league throughout our data set. Um, we partnered with a data provider that Covered. I think it was twenty nine leagues. So we would look through all these leagues, look at the stats, and say, right, which players do we think are quite interesting? What we would have is a player position, identicate type thing. So we'd say, right, for our le- what do we want out of our centre backs? Um, the way that I proposed doing it that was taken up by the club was you do it on a must, should, could basis. So we say our centre backs they must be good in the air. We don't care if they're Fragile Van Dyke and every other aspect, if they're not good in the air, then we're going to get beaten up and there's no point in them coming. Mm-hmm. Then you move on to the should attributes. So they should be relatively well disciplined, but it's not a must. So if you do commit two or three fouls a game and give away silly uh, free kicks, then as long as you're doing everything else that we expect from a centre-back, as long as you're athletic, you win everything in the air, you know, can bring the ball out the back okay then we'd still consider you and then finally they could so the we add-ons that are not mega important but if it's between player a and player b and they're otherwise identical would swing it in player a's favor so like being good at a set piece that sort of thing so i would build stats and build metrics based on these attributes and through that you go through every single player in europe that we had data on and say right okay this one ticks that many boxes uh, but we'll need to watch them to see if they tick the other boxes. The things like athleticism, attitude, work rate, that I'm never going to be able to get a stat for. But mm-hmm. they are important. So we'd then move on to the video scouting for these guys. And it would just be, so Monday to Friday, you go through, you run the rankings, you run the leagues for all the matches that happen. And you just keep scouting through these lists. And like, it is kind of frustrating at times. Football is, uh, obviously, everybody else is doing similar so you scout player. You've just finished scouting a player, and the next thing you know, he's agreed a pre-contract with Werder Bremen, and you've just wasted three or four hours. Um, but yeah, that, that's that's
0: pretty much how what we'd be doing Monday to Friday. You talked about it slightly early on about the the relationships within the club. How how key are they, and how much input? Um, how involved? Are you with the, the the manager, the sporting director? How, how much contact is there, kind of, on a daily and weekly basis?
1: So, manager Paul Cook, he's an absolute whirlwind of a guy, um, mm. brilliant one to one, fantastic personality. Whenever I talked with him, you would hear him around the, you would hear him miles before you see, see him. Uh, he's just get this big. Have you ever heard him talk, Paul Cook? Yes. Oh, he's a proper scouse. <laughs> yeah. he's, he shouts all the time, so his voice is never not hoarse. My, in terms of my day-to-day relationship with him, it only really accelerates when in the lead up to a window. So in December, mid-December, we were presenting recruitment targets. We'd present them to Paul. And then once coronavirus hit, we're all working from home. We had a couple of recruitment meetings every week and Paul would be on these. We'd present him players, and he'd basically give them the thumbs up or the thumbs down. Um, sporting director was Joe Royal. Absolute privilege to work with Joe. He's a guy who, and he's an Everton legend. If you go to Goodson Park, there's a big, big painting on him on the side mm-hmm. of the stands. Camps for England. he's obviously managed Everton City, Ipswich. Um, and he's old school, he accepts data, But there's little conversations you'll have with him and he'll he'll teach you something new about football all the time. So something that he taught me was, always remember, we're looking at centre-halves and their ability in the air. And I always thought the aerial win percentage was quite cut and dry of how good you were in the air. And he was like, nah, you can win a lot in the air, but if you lead with your arm, you lead lead with your elbow, and you shy away from the ball, then the ball's only going to hit the corner of your head. And if it hits the corner of your head, then you're not going to have any control of where the ball's going. So you might win the challenge in the air, but who knows where that second ball's going to go. So mm-hmm. Joe would always say, look for centre backs that head it with their foreheads. That have a good that keep their elbows tucked into their sides head it with their foreheads. Because that means one, they've got a good spring, and two, that they're brave. Um they're willing to meet the ball head on. It's more controlled. So it was a privilege. He was probably closer with us. He came into the office two or three days a week, would sit down, he had all sorts of stories, all sorts of stories, um, but still very much with it in terms of football. Um, So we'd talk to our targets and it's similar with Paul. Um, He would give them a thumbs up or a thumbs down.
0: And how did it... How did you decide on those targets? Or meet beforehand? Or like weeks in advance? Like these are the positions that we are targeting. Is the manager decide who who, who's who's telling you what positions to kind of look at?
1: That comes from well. So there's again, like there's two sides. So on one hand, we've got squad depth charts. We can see that next summer we're not going to have any centre backs at all. So we we know straight away that centre-backs are going to be some an area that we'll need to target. On mm-hmm. the other side, the the personal injury suspension side, anything that, that the gaffer wants to tweak within the squad. So that's for the conversations that he'd have, mostly with our head of recruitment. But you'd, you'd sometimes hear them as well saying, oh, so-and-so is terrible. We need a new position X, whatever it might be. And all of a sudden, we'd be looking for, looking for a new attacking midfielder, a new striker. Um <laughs> but then like you know, football changes. So an hmm. example would be obviously in the during the coronavirus, post coronavirus, we're gonna have been absolutely super only lost twice in our last seventeen games. And we were sort of thinking that I don't know if I should probably say the position, but there was a player who were thinking we might want to move on during this time. And since then he's been absolutely fantastic. He's got five or six assists, he's looked like a world-class player at the championship level. Um, and all of a sudden, all these targets we have for right-back, they're not relevant anymore because the guys are in the jersey again.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's um, it, that, there's the two sides. There's the ones that you can see coming and um, any any changes that happen. And transfers out as well, that, that can be a thing. If they're still at the club just now. You're looking at Kiefer Moore. It looks like he's probably going to go to QPR or Millwall. So you need to quite quickly come up with some strikers, um, which we were doing in the background. You always do your stats, your video. You've got that worrying away. It's just a case of getting the presentations ready for, ready for Joe and for, for Paul.
0: So you, you mentioned stats there and, and, and metrics you come up with. How, just how important are stats? And because, again, there's, there's always going to be some uh, suspicion um, with regards to stats, certainly from some within football. How important are they and what are they? Obviously, it could change from position to position, but what are the metrics which you think are really important?
1: Okay, um, so stats. There's There's a good argument that I heard about stats a few months ago, and it's that see if you speak to the more old-school guys about stats, then they'll say, right, the, the, the way that they've got of thinking is actually quite a statistical way of thinking. So Joe Royal, we go back to his example about people heading with their forehead as opposed mm-hmm. to heading with their, um, with their arm out. He'll know that because he's watched so much football that he knows that the centre-backs who keep their arms tucked in and forehead with their head, and head with their forehead are more likely to be successful further on down the line. So in the same way, I know that somebody with a high XG is probably going to be a good goal scorer. Mm-hmm. It's just based on like intuitive patterns. His is everything that he's seen with his eyes. Um, thankfully, I've got a whole load of data behind me to draw conclusions as well. So it, you can win around a lot of traditional football people if they see what you're approaching. I think a lot of it, uh, what's, what's the word? Why do I need stats when I've got my eyes type mm-hmm. thing? But if you're looking at all the players that are available, all the professional footballers, there are tens of thousands of them and you're just never going to get eyes on every single one of them. What you could do is you could pick a couple of leagues. You could say, we're only going to look at League One in England, we're only going to look at the Scottish Championship, and we'll get eyes on every single one of them. And you might, you probably get the best of what that market has to offer, but you'll no doubt miss out on some opportunities as well. So so stats are ultimately the first step in filtering down these tens of thousands of players to a more manageable group. And then from that manageable group, you can start to pay more attention to the videos, scout them live, personal background. It's just not feasible to do that with every single player out there. Um, In terms of what specific stats to look for, obviously it varies on a position-by-position basis. Without giving away sort of my secret sauce, the metrics that I use, you might look at – so passing is an important one. A lot of people won't go – much further past, past percent past completion percentages. Maybe they'll go to like final third past completion percentage. But that doesn't really give you much nuance in what you're looking to build from a team. So for example, centre-backs, if we're looking at centre-backs, what I can do looking at event data. So event data is, if you go to these data providers, they'll give you every single kick of that ball in that game, where it was, what happened, um, any other relevant stuff. And so, for any given game, you've got about fifty thousand events right there, and you can go through them and model them how you like. So from the event data, I can see right we like our center backs to start with the ball um about forty yards from goal, and we like them to always find a pass a forward pass into the final third half space, something like that using the data, I can using pass origin pass destination, I can look at which players are the best at completing that specific type of pass rather than a defender that has a 99 pass completion rate but only passes to the guy next to him or back to his goalie. So I think it's really important to know what you're looking for. A lot of people will kind of look at it backwards and say, right, we have this list of stats. How, Which ones, like, for a striker, what are the top five stats that we're going to look? We want to look at XG, we want to look at shots per 90, we want to look at dribbles per 90, that sort of stuff. But I think if you really, really want to scrutinise it, you should work the other way. You say, right, forget about stats. What are we looking for in a striker? And from that list, then you think, right, how can we get these metrics from the event data? And you work that way. And that way, you know what you're doing is specific. You know that it's going to benefit your team. And the other benefit as well, you know nobody else is going to be looking at these specific metrics. Everybody, like With all due respect, every club's got a scout skirt and an in subscription. So if you're just looking at stats off these, the chances are that the guy that you're looking at that shows up really, really well, probably going to have been seen by 5, 10, 15 other clubs too. So doing what, keeping your metrics in-house, designing them in-house, makes them specific and makes it more likely that you're going to stumble upon a player that not a lot of other folk are.
0: These so a lot of stats for yourself within Wigan, probably different clubs as well. They are kind of unique to you.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not ignorant enough to think that people aren't doing similar elsewhere. But I know that what we're doing in Wigan works for us. It's specific to us, and it was designed in house. So somebody might have Blackburn down the road; they might be doing exactly the same. Like, I don't know that. They don't know what we know, that mm. sort of thing. It's uh, it's an information
0: edge, I think. And do stats come before you actually set eyes on the player?
1: Yeah, yeah, just from a pure... I mean, there's a lot of players. Um, the scouting team will will troll almost through, um, particularly the English, if we're, we're in the, based in the Northwest. So we've got scouts that regularly will go to every single African Stanley game, every single Rochdale game. So there's ones that they'll find, um, not by accident, but just like they'll be going to a game and they'll think, oh, he's played well, let's do a report on him. So there are, you do still find them organically, but stats, just from that logistical point of view, they have to come before the eyes and the live data because otherwise there's no way of knowing who to cover. Mm-hmm. Then that's when you started to become at the mercy of agents and of tip-offs, they'll say, oh, have a look at so-and-so, he's really good. And you're like, oh yeah, he is really good. I'll spend £2 million on him. When the data could tell you that there's a guy who's available who's just as good, if not better, for half or a quarter of the price. Um, so yeah, that, that's data's biggest strength, I think, filtering.
0: And how long is the process from identifying a position, selecting a player, then signing a player? Um, so signing a player is the last one and it's
1: probably takes the, in some cases it can be done very very quickly like Leon Balagoon for example was a centre back that we brought in from Brighton and he's one that we followed, uh, we'd been following for a few months the player wasn't particularly keen to come to a championship team um, but it was afternoon on transfer deadline day he didn't have any other. He wasn't playing for Brighton, and the Wigan interest. He knew that we'd been following him for a few months, and then when it came to picking up the phone, he had a chat with our and he had agreed to sign within a couple of hours. Um, on the other hand, you've got players. For example, there was a player that we were watching from like September last year, and we'd been negotiating with him um, from I think about March, February, March time, and it's all very. <laughs> I mean, they talk about Velcro badges in football and players' loyalty. A lot of that loyalty is to their team, their specific teammates. Um, it's not particularly particular loyalty to a club. So what they will do is, they'll say, we were struggling at the bottom of the table for, for much of the season. They'll say, well, yeah, we would we, want to come to you, but we want to make sure that you're a championship club, or we want to see if we can get more money further up the division. Um, and unfortunately, it's, it's one of the ones that you can't take personally. Football's a short career. They're all contractors. They know that because we had a player, Shea Dunkley, who um out of contract he was supposed to be out of contract in June. Broke his leg in like February time. He'd rejected a few contract offers from us before then. Broke his leg and he's like 28, 29 years old. It's just terrible, terrible timing for that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So things can't change in an instant for these guys and you do have to have sympathy with them looking for um, the highest bidder looking for what's best for their career. So something the due diligence side usually takes takes a few months, um, but signing can take
0: uh, from minutes, hours, right up to months as well. Can we take a, take a position like, like striker? What would you be looking for? In a striker? Yeah. So
1: specifically for Wigan, I would say we play with one striker. So they've got to be good at hold-up play, link-up play bringing the um, attacking midfielders into into the game as well. They've got to get into the penalty box a lot. They've got to show that they've got a good quality of finishing as well. Um, There's two sides of XG, and there's a side that I don't think has been fully explored yet, but it's very valid. So you've got normal XG, which kind of looks at, okay, you Joel Sked took a shot from this point of the pitch, and you had this many defenders in the way, and this had a 20% chance of being a goal, looking at everybody else who's been in that position over time. But then there's the post-shot XG that says, right, forget about where you actually were. Where did you put it in in the net? And you look at players through, well, through recent times, You Harry Wilson um, at Derby County last season, Coutinho, prolific long-distance shooters. Sometimes it's a skill in finishing um, from a specific area of the pitch. So you look at that as well. You can say, right, okay, You might have only had a 20% chance based on where you were before, but because it's you, because it's Joe Sked, and you've taken 10, 20, 30 shots from that exact position before, and 80% of them have gone in, I'm actually going to say you've got an 80% chance of scoring that, beyond that. So quality of finishing, quality of link-up play, um, athleticism, work rate, they're actually huge in the whole no dickheads policy. And that's not necessarily one that you can get through data, but you can Mm -hmm. get through a Google search, you can get through video, uh, particularly live games, looking at their attitudes. So there's a whole host of things. You'd probably be looking at 10 to 15 factors per position. You'd probably be able to get stats for about 10 to 12 of them. And the rest, you just have to knuckle down and, uh, and try and get through the video or through live.
0: So when you're recruiting a player, what... <laughs> What do you present to the managers? Is there like a report? How many games do you watch of that player? And then does the, uh, the manager himself watch watch those players before deciding yes or no?
1: Well, this, this is an interesting thing. It varies from club to club and it actually varied. Uh, it changed in my time at Wigan. So when I first went in, the manager would want eyes on any signing. He would want himself to go see a guy before he committed to to... Um, bringing him into the club, and a few signings we we'd been following them for ages, and they fell down at that that last hurdle because the gaffer didn't particularly like something about them, which is fine. Um, as coronavirus hit and live games were were cancelled, and I, I guess as well as the gaffer started to trust more what we were doing, um, he was quite happy to we're looking at like pre-contract signings. He was quite happy to give them the okay based on based on our due diligence, based on trusting the team, and he would see a small video of them as well. So he obviously has his own Scout account. What we would do is we would present players to him on a Monday and the presentation, so we had we give him a dossier, which is like a PowerPoint presentation. We say, this is why we like him, this is the situation, this is how much it'll cost. Here are some other players that we've considered, but this is why this guy should be the one that you look at. We'll play a five-minute video of him, just his main strengths, some of the key metrics for these positions. So if it's a striker, you'd be looking at his finishing, his one-cup play, his defensive work rate. And he'd, if he passes both these tests, then he might go away and take a look at him. He might say yes in the spot. Um, in terms of how many games we'd watch a player for before we'd be comfortable presenting him. So the data will do most. It depends how much you can get from the data and how much you can. you have to scout for yourself, um, for strikers, a lot of the ones that are watching were really, really strong in stats, um, and you could see within a couple, two or three games that yeah, they tick the other boxes as well. Mm-hmm. You'd be comfortable displaying, presenting him to the manager. Other ones that are a little bit more nuanced, where you don't really have as much data on them, um, and you need to watch the tape a little bit more like a box to box midfielder for example in terms of their athleticism, work rate, how can they how do they react when when the chips are down? You'd maybe have to watch them five or six times. And several people as well, that would be something that we'd we'd want. You wouldn't want I wouldn't ever be watching a guy two or three times. Even if I was convinced this guy was the next Messi, I would always look to have somebody else, whether it be the Chief Scout, the head of recruitment, um any of the other scouts, just a little bit of cross referencing to make sure that yeah, if we turn, if the gaffer turns around and says, "No, this player's terrible," who signed them? Like, who? Why did you? Why have you presented them? Then at least we can say, "Well, we've had two or three scouts watch him. We've got these good stats. We've shown that we've done our due diligence," as opposed to me just sitting there saying, "Oh yeah, I watched him and I thought he looked quite good." It just helps you, helps him trust us that we're properly doing our due
0: process. You mentioned box to box midfielder. There is is that the most difficult position to recruit for, or is there another that you find is harder than than, than certain others? I think centre mid is
1: yeah probably box to box is is the most difficult because most of the, what you're looking for in a box to box midfielder it's not necessarily the statistics that you can measure. Hmm. Um, looking at our personal in house model. for a a box-to-box midfielder. A lot of them are things that you could only really find out through watching the tape. You you can get gets into good positions, you can get goal-scoring threat from the stats, but the the real, most of the role, unfortunately, would not be something that we could just click open a spreadsheet and see straight away. Um, Most positions, you'd have a good idea from the stats, and we can still flag up through stats which box-to-box midfielders we'd like to take a look at. But I would never be comfortable um proposing a box to box midfielder that I'd never seen before solely through data. Whereas for a striker, if there's a striker who I know has got good really good underlying numbers, nine times out of ten he's gonna be good in the tape as well. But for a box to box midfielder it's a bit more nuanced. Centre back as well, because defending is so uh defending's much more of a team game than than the attacking side of things. It's so based on units and stuff. You can get defenders that have decent underlying stats. There was one that I watched who was playing in Belgium um, earlier on this season that he was was fairly good. Underlying stats, he was available on a free at the end of the season, spoke good English. Um, I watched a game of his and within the first 20 minutes he'd been to blame for three goals in three <laughs> different ways. Giving away a penalty, he'd lost his man, he just didn't compete in there. And right, okay, that's, that's a no. Straight
0: away. Um so He's yeah. a, it's the type of defender I'd like to see in Scotland.
1: <laughs> his brother actually played in Scotland. And his oh, okay.
0: okay <laughs> that's uh, I'll leave that to the listeners to work out that one. Uh, <laughs> for just talk the, the striker there they quite easier to see it's easier to see well underlying stats. You you mentioned link up play. How how do you measure that? That's just something that's uh, interesting interesting me.
1: So you would look at where the striker is receiving the ball on the pitch um, and then what they do with it. Are they able to, how many times are they tackled, how many times is it a miscontrol, uh, how many times do they managed to make a pass ahead of them. You can measure all these sort of things. You can say, right, you receive the ball in that in the central channel of the final third, 10 times a game. And you only give it away three or four times out of that, and the rest of the time you've done like a backward. You can measure actions as positive, negative, or neutral. So you can say a positive action if you hold off a centre back and you do a forward pass. If you fashion a shot, negative action if you miscontrol it or if you give it away, and a neutral action which might be like a back pass or you're fouled or something like that. Um, so, you, like, there's different ways of doing it. It's very, it's a very for, a profession that often gets labelled as pure nerdy, there's a lot of creativity towards it, thinking, right, how are we going to model this? What what does good hold-up play look like if we're to break that down? Um, and through asking, and these are the sort of conversations that I enjoy having with coaches. Um, what exactly is it you're looking for in this position? What does that, beyond any cliches, what, does that, what specific jobs are you wanting that player to do? From that, it's much easier to start building towards a statistical model of how we can get these guys in through the data.
0: Okay, okay. And f- flipping the other side of the the pitch, is there? Do, do you find it difficult with goalkeepers, or is there specific recruitment analysis uh, analysts to focus on goalkeepers? Because I'm, I imagine it's. Again, when he, he, it comes to analysis of games, you see David Priest talk about it. Is that there's there's a lot of just outfield players talking about a goalkeeper when they've not really maybe understood the position?
1: Yeah, so during my time at the club, we signed David Marshall quite early on. I didn't really have too much of a say and that. He was on a two-year contract and it wasn't a position that we were particularly looking to strengthen. Um However, just out my own curiosity, it was an area that I did look into. There are I remember having a conversation with one of my friends who's big into his goalkeepers. He did goalkeeper analysis before. And he says, at the end of the day, for goalkeepers, it's too many people can get caught up with technique and style. But as long as they keep the ball out of the net, that's the most important thing. So mm-hmm. don't close your eyes off to any of the unorthodox techniques. Um Another interesting thing about goalkeepers, I was looking at, I mentioned passing. Um, I've got a passing model where I look at not just what your passing completion rate is, but as I alluded to earlier, based on the other types of passes that you complete, what should, how many should you have been completing from where you're passing from, based on where you're passing to. And quite often, the ones at the top of the goalkeepers list throughout the leagues, it's Onana at Ajax, it's Ederson at Manchester City. So, like, you can identify through these stats who are the best at bringing the ball out from the back. Um, if I was asked to look at the goalkeeper, then I would probably have to go through... By the way, do you know who the goalkeeper coach is at Wigan? No. Nick Colgan. Oh, is it Nick Colgan? Okay. Nick Colgan, yeah. I remember the first time I knew Nick Colgan was from an SPL sticker album when I was
0: yeah, 10 yeah. years old. Should
1: have had Carton when it was at Yes. Very much so. Another lovely guy by the way. Um I didn't get the opportunity to work too closely with him just because we didn't really need the goalkeeper at that time. But if mm. we did then I'd be looking to sit down and have a chat. Somewhere like we talked about strikers, what what are your must, should and coulds for this position and then we'd look at the best ways to model them.
0: Yeah, that that's that's really interesting. I mean the going back to what you said about Joe Royal, just these these are things that I've never never think of with the uh, with the elbows so uh, that that relationship is, is is really key and is that do you find that with the more traditional scouts as well that you that they're able to pass on a bit more kind of knowledge you just watched? they've watched so many so much football what good players do that can help you develop your own kind of stats and measurements
1: yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's lots of conversations with um, with people around football. It's a small world, so you do network quite a lot through mm. going to games, people coming to the training ground. Um I remember I was going for a pass one day and I passed Kenny Deglish in the hallway. I was like, what the? <laughs> it's not more than a double a tra- triple take. Tra- Is that Kenny Deglish yet? He'd come because he was close with the gaffer or something like that. Mm. Um, but yeah, through these little tidbits, you do pick things up. Um and you, you can't be dogmatic about uh, I've put a lot of errors into the stuff that I've created at Wigan um, but I can never I would never close myself off to thinking that there's areas of the game that I don't know about I've never played football outside fives in my puff mm-hmm. I, I'm i at the mercy of what these guys are telling me and any any scraps of information that they do get then I'm going to take them up as best that I can on it um, There are there are cliches that you do have to deal with from time to time um, about players from certain clubs like if the youth academy manager has got a bad reputation then thinking oh he's going to have a bad at- bad attitude uh, um, yeah just it's stupid cliches that you do hear from time to time um, I've had other scouts at other clubs say that the Swiss Super League was only equivalent to League One standard in England and you're like right come on you've got Basel playing Champions League, young boys in the Europa League, you're selling players to the Bundesliga routinely for tens of millions of pounds. Like, mm-hmm. Just it, observations that aren't really borne out by reality. Um, But it's like any industry. You, For somebody like me who's quite inexperienced and quite new, I've, my head's as open as it can be to these sort of things. I'm looking to take in as much knowledge as I can. I will critically analyse what they're saying, um, like in that case there, but Yeah, by and large, it's just a huge learning process for me.
0: How did you? This is maybe more of a question relating to your time at Livingston rather than Wigan, because of the the different roles. How have you found the buy-in from the players at the club regarding stats? Are they really keen to keen to know, or or is it basically just depending on which player is, uh, is is interested? So I didn't
1: actually do that much in the way of stats for Livingston, mm. from what I can remember. Um, oh no, well, do you know what? In the in the pre-match analysis videos, I would put in certain things. Um, like, where are players statistically likely to go in terms of their dribbling, um, goalkeeper save rates from certain locations. So, yeah, I mean, they, they were all, I never received any negative feedback, certainly, mm-hmm. so like, slag- they were slagging me at least behind my back (laughs) yeah yeah, they all seem quite interested quite switched on with the video analysis side of things certainly Um, and you have to be I mean professional football nowadays it's unavoidable that stats and data can help you read I read an article the other week about Stefan De Vrij the Dutch centre-back at Inter Milan Mm -hmm. he's got a video performance coach to go through every game with him separately and look at I think he's let him go now, um, now that he's joined Inter, but certainly when he was at Lazio, he was paying this guy just to go through the tape with him and like how could your movements change there? Like they've got to be humble. They've got to be humble towards that sort of thing. Um and yeah, I mean most of them are. Most of them are professionals um in how they approach that sort of thing. And you do like it's it's the future.
0: Talking of the future, is there something Stats-wise, that you'd love to see, love to explore yourself or see developed, or just a certain stat that you, that would just make your job a lot easier. <laughs> um, I've been
1: working with stuff in the background um, over. I wasn't followed at Wigan, but I did have a lot of uh, free time over the past few months just to explore because there was a hell of a lot of uncertainty going on about what division would football be coming back at all, whatnot. So I did devote quite a lot of time to. Um, Getting properly stuck into the event level data and exploring all sorts of metrics. I think that I don't think the day of a silver bullet stat will ever come where it's, yeah, we can sign a player purely based on this. Um, But I mean, it will change from club to club. It depends what specific coaches are looking for within their recruitment department, within their players. Um, From a personal perspective, I just want to keep this project going. I feel a bit frustrated that at Wigan it was curtailed when it did. Mm. Um this was the first window that I had the word properly been part of the recruitment Monday to Friday. Um and we we had lots lots of good work lined up. I really do believe if you look at the team just now it's absolutely flying. There's a couple of additions I think that we could have made and at least playoff contenders for next season. So for me, the next stage is taking a project like that through through to its completion and
0: being there for for well, being there for more than a year. What have you found, we'll come back to uh, Wigan in a second, but what have you found to be the challenge, the main challenges of the, the role as a recruitment analyst? Um, main
1: challenges. I think what, what's kind of frustrating, what can be frustrating, is if I'm really keen on a player, I think it's learning how to sell it um, to other people, learning to how to how to say right. You should have a look at this player without saying because you do. The downside of football is unfortunately you do get quite a lot of egos at, mm. at places, so it's it can be quite challenging in you get a lot of experienced football guys that would not necessarily like to see, wouldn't rate a player from like the Swiss Super League, for example. Um, one of, well, I'll tell you actually, I probably shouldn't say this, but I don't know how many, um don't know how many listeners of the Terrace are going to be really coming back to English football to Wigan. <laughs> uh, there was a player that we were looking at who was playing in Sweden and one of our scouts wrote that a reason we shouldn't sign him was because he was wearing gloves and it was sunny and I'm just like head banging stuff. By and large they were fine, but that you did come out with stuff like that. And like, I put done all this effort to get you this player who clearly ticks all these boxes and you're saying no because um because of he's wearing bloody gloves. His hands Never are mind that. Yeah, exactly. And it was in the north of Sweden, by the way, it was north of Sweden in winter. So although it was sunny, it was still like minus five degrees. Yeah. Like, oh what are you talking about? Um it's compared to the challenges that I face in other industries. It's it's nothing. Um, it's a job that I'm thankfully very passionate about, and it, any minor frustrations like that you do quickly get past. Uh yeah. The only other frustration is is it anything that Virgin Media that didn't go through. If I had a frustrating week, it was right end of the day at Friday. I can just walk away and forget about it until Monday morning. Mm-hmm. Whereas with football. Is you do live it, you do breathe it, you do get passionate about your club, and if there are things that you would want to change and do better, you want to see things happen a bit quicker. It does emotionally affect you, so it's that's a toll, but it's um, it's a good problem to have. I'd rather have that problem than be bored out and not working uh, working elsewhere.
0: And with Wigan, there it was it's unfortunate the, the way it ended, and I scene that you tweeted about. Kind of hope for next season. If the administration hadn't come, you, you, you thought that there was a good chance that you could push towards a playoffs. The, the, the team have certainly showed that since the uh, since the shutdown and even before then. What so for yourself? What do you think the the future holds? Is there any particular kind of team or recruitment team that you 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 you've seen that you'd you'd love to work with?
1: It's, it is kind of difficult to say for certain because you never really know what a recruitment department is going to be like until you're actually in there. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Brentford are one who are well known for being very progressive in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, at the end of the day, it's only the, the quality of people is the most important thing. And it's difficult to know that until you actually know until you know the people. Um, there's a few folk in football that I've met who are brand new who I would love to work with. Um but yeah, I've got to be open minded about where, where my next move is. It could be could be in Poland, it could be in the English Championship. I've got an opportunity north of the border as well. So um I'm just for me it's gonna be going in somewhere that will adopt will embrace because you do get even at English Premiership clubs, you do get ones that have a big recruitment analysis department and it's only really there at window for window dressing mm-hmm. and they are still agent led, manager led. Um, they'll propose all these players from all corners of Europe and they'll end up signing, uh, spending £15 million pounds and some dud from um, the English lower leagues, which does happen sadly. So I have to be convinced that the pro- they did take data on recruitment analysis seriously, that we were good people to work with as well.
0: So I wanted to finish by looking back towards Scotland. You obviously know the league very well. Has your perception or view of the game up here changed since since moving down? Well, it's strengthened that uh, you think there's some very good players up there or altered another way?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I was always a fan of Scottish football and I've always watched um, games throughout my time down here. Um, I'm an advocate of the game as much as, as where I can be. Um, you only have to look at somebody like, James Scott who Hull signed and probably not the best move for him given everything that's gone on there since but he's mm-hmm. certainly looked like more than competent at this at this level here there are lots of good players in Scotland um, there's still a little bit of snobbishness mm-hmm. um, in certain quarters towards yeah, Scottish football. yeah like you do hear it from some of the older guys Oh, I remember when every English team had uh, four or five Scottish players, and you just don't see that anymore. Blah blah blah. It's nonsense. It really is nonsense. I would like to see Scottish teams become a little bit more outward-looking in terms of their recruitment. Mm-hmm. Um, I know. I think it's a common, um, common complaint that's still valid that they do look too too much towards the English lower leagues as a source of their recruitment. There's no harm looking. A little bit further afield, especially with the work permit laws slightly different in Scotland um, than they are in England. But yeah, no, I'm a huge fan of the league. I believe that it's um, it can be badly managed at times, as we've seen over the past few months. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff going on there to be proud of.
0: And finally, just looking with the upcoming season and your analysis, I'm sure, which is taking you north of the border and just from what you have seen in passing for the, the past season, who, who are the players which teams, uh, sorry, fans should be looking out for this season and um, maybe ones who are maybe not as obvious?
1: Um, Well, certainly for yourself at heart, Andy Irving is one that's been spoken about quite a lot, fantastic mm-hmm. passer, excellent in the final third, Motherwell have such a good gaggle of young talent coming through as well. Um, the, the interesting thing is Scottish clubs are a lot better at blooding their youth than English ones, So um, certainly at the Championship anyway, so there's always going to be exciting stuff coming up through the academies, I think we're seeing from the performance schools now, a hell of a lot of them being scouted by the likes of Man City, Bayern Munich, um, so I think the next couple of years for Scottish football fans, paying particular performance that Particular attention to the ones who have come through the performance schools. It's taking a little bit of time, but it does look like we finally stumbled upon a good process for producing young talent. So yeah, I would certainly
0: be keeping an eye on these guys. Lovely. Thanks very much for coming on. And that was that was fascinating looking into your role as a recruitment analyst and all the best of luck for the future and getting back in somewhere, whether it's in Poland, in English Premiership, or north of the border. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure.